In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't know about you, but I like checking out the covers of our bulletins. It's a different picture every week. Some catch my attention more than others, and I'll be honest, my first take on this week's was a pretty neutral, oh, that's nice. Nearly all of them come from a wonderful project of the Vanderbilt Divinity School, art in the Christian tradition, that makes images available to be used by churches at no cost. It's a pretty great thing that they do. But as noted this week, I wasn't especially focused until I read just that little bit we have about the cover illustration. Artist unknown, the work dates from the late 15th or early 16th century and is called 72 Disciples though we only see 10 of them in this particular clip. But what got my attention is that the work is described as Ethiopian. I have no idea what the boundaries of Ethiopia were in the 15th or 16th century, though it certainly existed. It is an ancient kingdom, but I doubt they match today's, and those boundaries aren't exactly fixed. Eritrea, for example, used to be part of Ethiopia, but has been its own country for about 30 years now. If you've been following the news, rather tragic news, you will know there has been a pitched battle going on for months between government forces and the forces of the region of Ethiopia, that is Tigray. The centralized government clearly had the upper hand until they didn't. This week, the Tigrayan army captured some 6,000 government soldiers, though some were actually Eritreans who had come back into Ethiopia to join with the government. So we have 72 Ethiopian disciples. But did they live in Addis Ababa or in Mekele, the capital of the Tigrayan region? or from Eritrea, or from one of the other 10 regions that make up what we call Ethiopia. We don't know. How could we? They're all Ethiopians to us, and whoever named the peace. Maybe an Ethiopian who knows those several regions could tell. Maybe not. We are, I expect, almost all of us in this room, Americans. But my, we are not all the same. Now, I was raised by parents, both first-generation Americans, one Lebanese-American, one English-American, who subscribed to the idea that being an American meant that wherever you came from was not nearly as important as being or having become an American. Traditions and culture and foods from the countries of one's birth made us interesting as a nation. But the overarching thesis was that we were all in this together. I expect that was a pretty common mid-20th century message, which has not worn so well. For one thing, it took no account of the fact that the first European settlers were the strangers in a strange land. 
They were the aliens because the native people were already here with lives and cultures and communities of their own. It hasn't worn so well because most native-born black Americans of African descent trace their ancestry to people brought here as slaves for whom citizenship, actually humanity, wasn't even on the table. The narrative hasn't worn well because as we as a nation have welcomed, sometimes wholeheartedly, sometimes grudgingly, people from other countries, we seem to find it harder to see us all as one people because the differences are just so clear in prescribed race, in religion, in language, and even among those who have been here for generations now, very different histories and cultures. So let me state the obvious by saying that the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence that preceded it were aspirational documents. And in fact, if we were going to study it today, we would probably be doing asterisks and footnotes around any number of lines in those documents. All men created equal. Well, it was actually white men who owned property, but nonetheless, it didn't say that, and that's proved to be helpful for us over time. And our call as Americans is to, is to continue to work as generations before us have to make those documents less aspirational and move closer to realizing what we believe were the dreams that undergirded them. That is not work for the faint of heart. It is, however, the work of Christians. So I want us to really listen to the Bible today. Actually, I want us to listen to the Bible every day, but especially today. But I also want us to hear the words of another Christian, he too from the mid-20th century, Pope John XXIII. He said, there are enemies of the church. There are enemies of the church, but the church has no enemies. I so wish that were so, but it wasn't through the centuries of Christendom. It wasn't when he said it. It isn't true now, but it should be. It is the right image and aspiration that the church may have enemies. There may be those who hate the church, but the church doesn't hate anyone. The Pope clearly heard Jesus' words today, as must we. But let's start with the Hebrew scriptures and that passage from Deuteronomy. Welcome the stranger. That's what Moses exhorted the people, because he knew that though they would settle into the promised land and claim it as their own, as their God-given land, they spent all those generations in Egypt and knew what it was 
to be a stranger and an alien. And there were people already in that land they were about to cross into. Don't forget. So Moses' words are a start. Remember what it is to be a stranger in a strange land. But it's only a start. Then we get Jesus, who ups the ante considerably, comes up with a command that strikes us as well-nigh impossible. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. As I have wondered about that and pondered it this week, I have begun to wonder about how God looks at us. And I began to think that maybe he looks at us a little bit like we look at that picture on the cover of the bulletin where we don't see lots of distinctions between those 10, but see them all together as one family, as one group. All of us pretty much the same, not because we look alike, because we don't as human beings, but because God actually sees us more clearly than we ever see ourselves or other people. God sees us, of course, through the eyes of love. So what does God see? Every one of us as one of God's very own beloved, precious children. God sees us as those beloved children and loves us beyond what we can even imagine, loves us far more than we ever manage to love ourselves. But that's not all God sees, because God knows us, and this is not blind love. So God knows and sees that we are, each of us, Enemies of God. Enemies of God. The thieves and the murderers among us, the churchgoers and the upstanding citizens in this great gathering of humankind. Enemies of God. Does that sound harsh? It does. And we may not be, I hope we are not, declared or even conscious enemies of God, we human beings, but we do things, we all do things, even daily, that cause us to turn from the love of God. Maybe it's that we worship things, idols, other than God. Maybe it's the things in our own personal history and constitution that draw us from the love of God, but we do that. We do not repent and return to God whenever we sin. Sometimes, maybe often, not whenever we sin. Some sins we don't want to give up. We do not recognize the image of God in every human being. 
And the reason we never love ourselves as much as God wants us to, or as much as God does, is we know this to be true, that we are failed and flawed and sinful, and it puts us, despite what we want, in opposition to God. We know all the ways, or at least some of the ways, in which we do not love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, let alone our neighbors as ourselves. Are there worse sinners than we are? Absolutely. Are there better Christians than we are? Absolutely. But with God, who loves us and sees us as precious children and sees that we are often God's enemies, it is love that wins out and grace in that little aside that flows abundantly, the sun needed for the earth to thrive, shining on the evil and the good. The rain, an absolute gift in a desert climate for the righteous and for the unrighteous. God sees clearly, but love wins, grace abounds. Why take Jesus' words to heart? When we know we are loved, we are changed. When we know we are known and still loved, we are deeply changed. And those changes lead us to a new life. Moses was a murderer before God chose him to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. Matthew was a tax collector, Matthew who wrote this gospel a collaborator with Rome before he became a follower of Jesus. Peter would deny Jesus not once but three times and Judas would betray him to death. Jesus knew who they were and loved them beyond reason, loved them as God loves us. Those men pictured on the front of the bulletin were painted by someone identified as an Ethiopian. But interestingly, the picture itself makes no mention of nationality. It simply says 72 disciples. Disciples. As noted, I think almost all of us here today are Americans. And I'm glad and proud to be one. But at the end of the day, the call to love our enemies will make us better Americans because it will make us stronger disciples. The road is long and we have miles and years ahead of us as a nation, as Christians, many of us individually. But if we actually commit to love our enemies, knowing we are loved, we will be just a bit more like God and maybe even glimpse that perfect love that showers upon us each and all. Amen.